0: This long national soccer nightmare is finally over after 13 months. The United States Soccer Federation announcing Greg Burhalter as the newest coach of the U.S. men's national team, as I said to the surprise of no one. It's not about the choice of Greg Berhalter. He certainly has the chops, the background, the experience, the resume. It's much more about the process. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we will be talking about the breaking news that is the United States Soccer Federation has officially named Greg Berhalter as the new coach for the U.S. men's national team. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Hashtag Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guy guiding light David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mr. Mossy. greetings from across the country. I am coming to you from NYC, New York City. I am here doing some press ahead of the MLS Cup final, which will be this Saturday on Big Fox, Homer Simpson Fox. We're doing some press here. I'm also here for the press conference that is going to announce officially Greg Burhalter as the new coach. How are you doing back there in L.A., my friend?
1: I am good. It is unusually cold here in LA, so it's actually probably not as big a difference between the two of us as you would think. How is the Big Apple treating you so far? It's it's
0: a beautiful, wintry day, not in the cold, biting, wintry type of mode, and it's actually much warmer and much balmier than you would expect, which means that everybody it's actually much happier but it is still it got that Christmas feel I I, I love Christmas it's my favorite holiday I, I love being in New York around Christmas the way that it's decorated and stuff there's there's nothing quite like it but it is uh, not as cold as I thought it was going to be and then when we head down to Atlanta midweek obviously we're going to be inside which is fine by me having been in Toronto and Kansas City <laughs> over the last few years which were some of the coldest places and coldest MLS cups that we have uh, ever had uh, anything else that you were doing uh, back there? and Any climbing? Uh, Your Michigan Wolverines, uh, from a football perspective, didn't play and so therefore they couldn't lose, right? Or uh, is it over for them? They're not making the Final Four, are they?
1: Nope. We are headed to the Peach Bowl uh, in Atlanta. We'll be playing Florida on December 29th.
0: Congratulations! Congratulations! All right, so we're going to do this a little bit different. As I said, I am in uh, New York. Mossy is in LA. I'm on the road, and so we're uh, we're putting this together a little bit differently. Uh, I'm we, we've talked so much about Greg Berhalter, and it is a surprise to no one that this has happened. And so, rather than the traditional State of the Union that we kick off the podcast with normally, uh, I'm just going to give a couple of thoughts and then bring Mossy back in because uh, everybody knows the story. Everybody knows what's going on. Uh, this long national soccer nightmare is finally over after 13 months. The United States Soccer Federation announcing Greg Berhalter as the newest coach of the U.S. men's national team, as I said, to the surprise of no one. I think the argument and the discussion right now is, and and I don't want to speak for everybody, but the way that I hear it out there from the street is that it's not about the choice of Greg Berhalter. Uh, He certainly has the chops, the background, the experience, the resume. It's much more about the process and coming on the heels of this last year where there was this public outcry for more transparency, more consensus, and more communication when it comes to how this was being done. Now, so so everybody is, is upset that this person wasn't interviewed, or not enough people were interviewed, or the details of the interview process weren't weren't made more clear. Burhalter is not a sexy choice. He is in in many ways the anti-Klinsman. Keep in mind that when Jurgen Klinsman was appointed, it was he was all about sex. It was it was this is a sexy name that resonates globally. Um, we know how that ultimately ended. But Greg Burhalter is not a sexy name, and ultimately, just like Klinsman, Greg Berhalter is going to be judged on winning and losing, and that solves a lot of problems. The inevitable and expected tainting of Greg Burhalter has already happened, but U.S. Soccer has no one to blame but their, but themselves. The way that they went through this process, and more importantly, the time that they took to make this decision, they're going to have to explain, and Greg Berhalter While people will always preface everything with saying, look, I have no problem with Greg Berhalter, he's a good choice, but I don't agree with the process, that is going to, I don't know if it's going to haunt him, but it's going to be attached to him for a very long time, at the very least until he starts winning, and I'm talking about winning over people by winning on the field. So now that this has happened mossy what are your first thoughts uh about where we are because i'll I'll just finish it by saying this i was talking to somebody earlier i cannot having been in this game for a long time i cannot i cannot think of a point when u.s soccer as a collective as a family as a culture has been more at, at, at a lower point in terms of the confidence that we have, not just in our men's national team, but in soccer in general. It is it is a dark time still, and it, it manifested through uh, the team not qualifying for the World Cup uh, this summer that happened, uh, you know, that, that horrible, horrible failure uh, 13 months ago right now. But do you think that this is going to be ultimately viewed as coming around the bend and coming out of this darkness in a in a positive way or do you think that the consternation and the angst and the hand-wringing that goes on is going to continue?
1: Well, it will depend on the results. I actually think the degree to which someone is upset about the process is directly linked to the outcome. If you think Greg Berhalter is a good hire, then yeah, sure, it took too long, but you can get over that and move forward. If you think Greg Berhalter is a bad hire or an underwhelming choice, then you're going to be really hung up on the process because you think it resulted in the wrong guy. So I actually think it's very difficult to separate the two, although, as you mentioned, many people are trying to do just that.
0: So you're Okay, so you're saying that it's just about a preference when it comes down to it anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, because look, you know, uh, there, there are different ways you can go about it. You can cast a wide net. You can talk to lots of different people. You can let the interview process dictate who you hire, or you can identify someone you think is the ideal choice and just go and get them. And neither approach is inherently right or wrong. Uh, it's just that people feel like Greg Burhalter is not worthy of having been that one guy they zeroed in on. If the one guy they zeroed in on was Tata Martinez, you know, and the mm-hmm. worst kept secret the last few months was that Tata Martino was going to be the U.S. coach, and they were just waiting until the end of the MLS season to announce it. And the day after MLS Cup, they announced Tata Martino as the next U.S. coach. I don't think there would be this much hand wringing over the process. In fact, I think a lot of people would praise Ernie Stewart for having been decisive and not having wasted time interviewing other candidates. He knew who he wanted, he went out and got him. And having to wait until the end of the MLS season was a small price to pay to get a coach like Tata Martino. But because it's Greg Burhalter, then it triggers this thing of like, we waited this long for Greg Burhalter, and he only interviewed one guy, and it was Greg Burhalter halter so i think the choice does play into how people view the process speaking of the process i want
0: to be fair to uh, to u.s soccer and look they saw this coming they knew that they were going to get hammered for the process and uh, in a proactive type of approach they sent out to everybody including us in the media the background on how the decision came to be and it's it's much more thorough than i think people, including myself, on the outside thought it's never going to be enough, as you said, for people that just first and foremost don't like Greg Berhalter. Secondly, for people that have a mistrust and a cynicism, and, and some of it well-founded in terms of the leadership and in terms of the past history when it comes to how they uh, have made decisions and the, the behind-closed-doors type of approach that they have taken. You can read it out there. Uh, we'll, we'll put it out there. It's, it's public in terms of Ernie Stewart uh, having an initial thirty-three people, whittling it down to eleven, whittling it down to four. The criteria on and off the field, in terms of what the person is that they are looking for, you can agree or disagree. But I think it's once again to be fair in terms of the criticism, it's much more detailed than I think that I thought it was going to be, and that's that's a good thing. Now it's it's still just being put out there and everybody's trying to spin different ways. Ultimately, it's very possible that Ernie Stewart had on his mind that he wanted to hire Greg Berhalter all along. He knew that Greg Berhalter ultimately would fit a lot of the criteria that he was going to put out, and this was much more f- out of ceremony. And that's that's okay with me, by the way. The, the United States Soccer Federation has membership. It is responsible to its members. Yes, it is responsible to the game of soccer, but it's responsible to his members, the members that have voted in the president and the leadership that they have agreed to take them forward and within that leadership comes power uh and the ability to make decisions and you want people to make decisions ernie stewart i'll tell you what mossy uh, knowing him for a long time he could care less about what i say what you say what anybody say he is a true believer in what he does and the way that he approaches the game. And that's 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 a good thing because as I said before, whether it's the coach or whether it's the technical uh, director, I want people with a plan. And I don't have to agree with it. It can be flawed, and I think you're seeing a lot of that right now. But when the press conference happens tomorrow here in New York City, I will be there. The questions are going to come. When was the first time Greg Burholter that you and or your representation were contacted regarding this job why if it was months ago why didn't you why didn't we just announce this and why did it take so long to do it the, 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 uh, the criteria uh, that they put out is going to be questioned it's going to be really interesting to see greg berhalter answer these questions ernie stewart answer these questions i think carlos cordero, cordero the uh, president of u.s soccer is going to be there but ultimately this is as you said about getting this team back and winning. Winning solves so much. You, you rarely see people, when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, complain about the way that we won. Uh, that's reserved for some of the elites of the world. Ultimately, if Greg Berhalter has this team functioning, qualifies it for the World Cup, does well in the World Cup, that's good. Now, I do think that Greg Berhalter is going to bring a style and a identity that he can articulate publicly and privately that you are going to grasp onto, but ultimately has to be matched with uh, that, uh, that winning and losing. Do you think ultimately, Mossy, that this is going to be a success? And I guess you'd probably have to define what your version of success is, this new era under Greg Berhalter.
1: I do. I think the U.S. has a lot of good young talent, and in in reading up on Greg Berhalter, I like what I hear from in terms of a style of play, and, and, and he seems to be uh, very tactically astute, and, and people whose opinion I respect uh, seem to rate him very highly as a coach. So I think this actually has a, a good chance to be successful, and, and the bar has been lowered by the fact that the U.S. didn't qualify for this last World Cup. Right. I do think an issue that overhangs all this that I know you're sensitive about, and I often view you as kind of the inferiority complex police on Twitter is uh, (laughs) uh, this notion that if you're an American coach in MLS, you're inherently a boring choice. And people feel like after missing out on the World Cup, U.S. soccer needed to do something bold. And they correlate bold with a sexy foreign manager. So does that bother you? Does that get under your skin when there's this assumption that a sexy foreign manager would have been a bigger hire than somebody like Greg Berhalter?
0: It bothers me. Whether it's relative to a player or to a coach uh, but i'm a i'm a big boy I've been around It's nothing new. I understand that that's how the human mind works, and that's how the American soccer community often looks at players and players that have a international pedigree and whether it's foreign players or foreign coaches there there is an advantage well we've seen that it doesn't always work, and that's where I come back to. Greg Berhalter, while he may not be sexy, he could turn out to be the greatest coach the U.S. has ever seen. He could also turn out to be one of the greatest coaches in the world. And by the way, he could right now be one of the greatest coaches in the world. That he has coached in Major League Soccer, that he has played in Major League Soccer, that he's grown up in the American soccer community doesn't preclude him, and it doesn't preclude me from looking at him as one of the great coaches in the world. This is going to be a, a, a really interesting process for him because we all know it's a very different job coaching a national team than coaching in a in a uh, in a club situation he's got to deal with a lot of things very very quickly I will touch on uh, the fact that yesterday my friend Taylor Twelman over at ESPN they uh, they were doing an interview with Michael Parkers who we will see this weekend uh, at MLS Cup playing for Atlanta United which you can see on Fox big big Fox Homer Simpson Fox Michael Parkers who has been involved in in and out of the U.S. camp over the last few years the last years talking about how Greg Berhalter is going to have to go and change the mentality and what what he was saying was that he felt that players no longer felt the pride and the responsibility for representing the national team. I don't necessarily agree with that and I certainly don't agree with it to the extent that he made it out to be, but I will say that if we are at a point where we have US players that need to have that need to be to, to have buy-in to represent their country, then we are in big, big trouble. And I would expect that even now, even even when it's not a great time, regardless of the circumstances, when the national team calls, I would expect players to feel that pride and that honor and that privilege of representing what I feel is the greatest country in the world. Now, I know that might be antiquated, and if that's the case, that would sadden me and anger me and i probably probably would want to have a talk with the group of players going forward i don't think that that is the case but if that is the case that will certainly be a challenge for greg berhalter uh, going forward
1: uh last thing for me we should address this uh the jay Burhalter issue for an organization u.s soccer that's been criticized for having all these conflicts of interest uh, yeah. th- does it bother you that there's somebody very high up in the organization that's uh related to the coach they just hired
0: so, so for people that don't know, uh, Jay Burhalter is a has long been with the United States Soccer Federation. is actually a a very smart and shining light type of person when it comes to the business of soccer. And long been rumored to have plenty of influence. Uh, not just rumored, he has plenty of influence right now. COO of U.S. Soccer. Obviously, Jay Burhalter is Greg Berhalter's brother. Is it a good look? No. It's not it's not uh, it's not a good look in this in this time where we are so concerned with uh, transparency and conflicts of interest and stuff like that. having s- said that, uh, Jay Burhalter had absolutely nothing to do with the hiring of the coach. Now he may have had influence in terms of hiring of Ernie Stewart, which is where the uh, you know the conflict of interest may come. Uh, keep in mind also that what Jay Burhalter is doing for to do his job and what he does in the United States Soccer Federation at times might be completely in conflict with what Greg Berhalter wants so they're not always going to be on the same side for example if Greg Berhalter says listen we um, we need to play this game here and Jay Berhalter says no we're gonna play it here because we're gonna make more money and this is a, a, a market that we need to mine and Jay and Greg Berhalter is going to say yeah but you're putting me in uh, uh, in a situation where I could potentially lose because we're at a disadvantage playing there and so all that kind of stuff is is going to happen so I don't see it always as going as this conflict of interest that is going to pose problems going forward Having said that you know it is it is not a good look and I think they're going to have to address that tomorrow at the press conference uh, going forward but I also I I I'm not into these conspiracy theories that this was all manu- manufactured. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure Jay is very very happy that Greg Berhalter is uh, is the coach right now. But it would be one thing if if Greg Berhalter was just some guy with no resume, no past, no history, uh, and uh, no track record of any type of success. Well, that's that's not the case. Now, has Greg Berhalter won everything and everywhere he's been? No, but. You are more than your record, especially your record when it comes to a uh, coach. And I always, I've used this a lot over the last couple of days, the, uh, the coach of Croatia. Uh, do you know who the coach of Croatia is, Mossy, after our summer exploits in Russia?
1: I do now. Yeah, Dalic, obviously, yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. But I didn't know who he was. Uh, before the World Cup, obviously I studied. I studied about it, but this was a guy that kind of came from nowhere. Coached, uh, not, didn't come from nowhere, but he certainly didn't coach at the elite clubs in in the world. And yet he took his uh, team to the semifinals, assuming to the finals of the World Cup this summer. So. Things like that can happen, and you can't necessarily judge a coach simply on the record, especially that coach when he or she moves to the international ranks. All right, anything else on this? Because we'll be be talking about this going forward uh, when this press conference comes out, but anything more on the naming of Greg Berhalter? Uh, Nope. All right, moving on. Hey, guys, it's Alexi Lalas, and more of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, Copa Libertadores, Major League Soccer, International Friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So, check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. It's that time... My friend Mossy is going to make yet another case. Uh, What are you screaming about this week, Mossy?
1: My case is that the Copa Libertadores final is now part of this larger discussion about the location of matches, which could have a tremendous impact on the future of the game. Uh, We're taping this on a Monday. We still don't know for sure where the second leg between Boca Juniors and River Plate will take place, CONMEBOL announced after much deliberation and after considering options like Miami and Doha that it would take place in Madrid at the Santiago Bernabeu Stadium, but that was met with an immediate backlash in Argentina. Both Boca and River are refusing to play in Madrid. Boca don't want to play at all. They think River should have to forfeit because of the behavior of their fans. The interesting thing is that the two men working to bring this final to Madrid are Spain Federation President Luis Rubiales and Real Madrid President Florentino Perez. Both of them are violently opposed to the idea of La Liga staging a game in Miami. They've argued that it would undermine the credibility of the competition for a Spanish league game to take place outside of Spain. Also keep in mind, most people in Europe are violently against the idea of a UEFA Champions League final in New York. I did read a column in a Madrid paper that addressed this seeming hypocrisy. It argued that these are extenuating circumstances. South America has shown itself incapable of holding this game, so Madrid is offering to step in. But this doesn't mean we're in favor of games taking place anywhere now. But still... There are many people concerned that this Copa Libertadores final moving to Madrid would weaken the argument against a La Liga game in Miami or a UEFA Champions League final in New York. They feel this is a dangerous precedent. It sends us down the path of the biggest games going to the highest bidder without any rhyme or reason geographically. And I must say I share that concern. That would be yet another negative in the sorry legacy of this 2018 Copa Libertadores final.
0: Well, it is, as you mentioned, uh, you know, this <laughs> sorry type of legacy, this, this drama that just— and, uh, and I asked the other day on Twitter, and, and I will ask you, has the time that's passed and obviously the events and this back and forth and this prolonged saga and drama, has it diluted it for you? Do you really care? Because, look, I'll be honest, this wasn't— you know, I don't watch a lot of Copa Libertadores, and this had a hook. It had a hook for a lot of people— That normally wouldn't watch it because it was one of the great matchups in the world. We talked about the atmosphere and the passion and all the different stuff. And that's why people, a lot of people, a lot more people tuned in. Has that been lost now? Have they lost that uh, that hook that they that they they have had? Because this is dragged on and look, we're getting into the Christmas season here and people are just kind of moved on to, to other things.
1: I saw you pose that question on Twitter, and my answer is absolutely. And don't take it from me. Take it from one of our colleagues at Fox, Johnny Araya, who is a die-hard River Plate fan who was so excited for this final, and now he told me he doesn't care anymore. He's so over it. He's so sick of this whole thing, and just get this second leg over with wherever you play it. I don't care. Uh, He thinks it's going to be tainted regardless. Uh, So yeah, I, I absolutely share that sentiment too. I am so over this whole thing. The interesting thing is that in the immediate aftermath of the incident in Argentina, there was some real shame some real humility, some real self-reflection, a sense that, boy, we have only ourselves to blame for this. And now the nationalism, the tribalism has kicked in and and it's become about, you know, how dare they take this away from us? How could Boca River not be in Argentina? Uh, How dare FIFA and Ball do this to us? Now, listen, I think you can make a case for taking it out of Argentina, but I don't know what the reason is for taking this out of South America altogether. Keep in mind, next year's Copa Libertadores final is scheduled to take place in Santiago, Chile. And what if Boca and River advance to that final? Why would next year be different than this year? And if a city like Santiago can't stage it this year, why would it be able to stage it next year? So that's the one thing that didn't make total sense to me.
0: Well, you mentioned Johnny, and he's absolutely spot on in that this is now tainted because it doesn't matter who wins. It's always going to have an asterisk next to it. Not maybe not literally, but everybody's going to associate it with all the ridiculousness. And you're gonna, you're, you can stand there and you can have, uh, you can raise the trophy and do all that, all that. But the opposition is going to say, yeah, it was ill-gotten uh, and it was unfair. And th- and that asterisk is asterisk is always going to apply. And that's and that's that's a shame because it was it was heading for something for something special. And, you know, here's the here's the other other thing that people have talked about punishing a team and players. And what we all know is the majority of fans that are good and decent and act like human beings as opposed to animals, punishing them for the actions of so few, especially the actions outside of a stadium. Do you think that that is fair um, and while it might not be fair do you think it's do you think it's right because there's only one way to stop it and at times you have to go further than just in the stadium punishing people or punishing teams
1: yeah there seems to be a real question about the inside or outside the stadium scenario because back in 2015 Boca and River played in the Libertadores and there were incidents inside the Bombonera and Boca had to forfeit uh, that match, And they're pointing to that as a precedent of what should happen this time around. But a lot of people say, wait, wait a minute, if it happens outside the stadium, it's more of a police issue. You can't expect the club to be able to regulate that. And I think there's some validity to that argument. That's why I'm against River forfeiting this match. I think that would be harsh for something that happened outside the stadium that they couldn't possibly have had any control over. So, yeah, that's where I come down. To that. It's interesting to me, this whole decision of where to put this final, because there's an inconsistency. You know, They're taking it out of South America because they think— on the one hand, River Plate fans need to be punished, and I think they want to make it harder for them to be able to go to this game. But then they chose Madrid over Doha, supposedly, because uh, Madrid is a city that has a large Argentine population. There are a lot of direct flights from Buenos Aires to Madrid, so I don't there, there's sort of a contradiction there. I don't know <laughs> uh, what, what the idea is here. I mean, the, the reaction, too, has been, from mostly the European media, I must say, uh, it's been that if you're going to take it out of South America, boy, better Madrid than Doha, and they've argued that on the basis that it, it's going to be a better atmosphere in Madrid, and Doha would be such a sterile environment. I think there's just such antipathy towards that part of the world now, and the influence that they're exerting in the game, and that's the real reason they didn't want this final to end up in Doha. I actually think Doha arguably made more sense than Madrid because of the proximity and date to the Club World Cup, the club that one could have just stayed there. And also, you have to understand the psyche of South Americans. Uh, there's a real complex about how much they've fallen behind Europe, and the fact that the best clubs and the best leagues are all in Europe, and the best national teams, by the way. The last four World Cups have been won by European countries, and so it's more of a shot to the ego to have this game, the Copa Libertadores final, be moved to Europe than it would have been Doha or say Miami I think that it would have Just been sort of a random place that they were Okay it's not ideal but I mean to have to have Europe come in and clean up South America's mess I think that adds to a whole nother layer to this thing
0: well, it, it, as you said, it is it is a mess, and it's just going to get messier, uh, even when they finally do decide what <laughs> how how this game is, is going to ultimately, or this this final is ultimately going to be decided. Uh, there are people that are still full on and in. There are people that are maybe even more interested or continuing their interest because they want to just see the ending. They want to see the ending to this incredible drama. There's some people like myself that uh, I think are starting to check out and there's some people that immediately when it happened uh, checked out for whatever moral reasons, or, or just they were, they just didn't want to see any part. And then there's people that didn't care in the first place. But like I said, it was a, it, it, it could ultimately be a real missed opportunity to have brought a lot of people in and introduced them not just to these two teams and the brand, but to a tournament that is that is wonderful, uh, that doesn't have as many eye, eyeballs out there as they want. Uh, so a, a missed opportunity on a lot of different fronts.
1: One last important comment on this whole thing. Sure. There's an interesting subplot that's playing out right now. Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay have submitted a a 3 prong bid for the 2030 World Cup while Spain and Portugal are likely to bid for that tournament as well. And there's a lot of talk that Madrid offering the this final, they're going to then use that when those discussions come up and say, look, they couldn't even uh, stage their biggest game. We had to come in and clean up their mess for them. And that's going to be an argument used in favor of Spain and Portugal getting that World Cup. And, and they feel like the Argentina-Uruguay-Paraguay bid has taken a massive hit here. And if, if CONMEBOL, knowing this, agreed to have this final move to Madrid, boy, that's kind of an own goal on CONMEBOL's part because they've really really hindered their chances of getting the 2030 world cup so keep in mind there's that whole other subplot hovering over this too now
0: <laughs> interesting interesting and as you mentioned the you know the whole aspect of, of playing games in other countries and, and doing all that so a big old can of worms that could possibly be opened up all right thanks mossy moving on ask alexi all right it's time for ask alexi that moment of the show when uh, we answer your questions that you have sent in over on social media with the
1: hashtag ask alexi all right mossy what do people want to know all right, first up, at Perry Triff, all things being equal, what team would you advise Pulisic to go to?
0: Uh, I would love to see him in the EPL. I would actually, I, I think he'd do well in Spain. But I think, look, if if Bayern Munich, which we know is, you know, every week it's up down, if Bayern Munich spends money, they've said they they're they're not going to in the January window, and they need, players that can play out wide they need technical players which he certainly is uh that would be I I think if if Bayern Munich comes in I th- I think I'd, I think that would be his best destination as far as I'm concerned I think the hectic pace and certainly the physical pace of a lot of the teams It's one thing if he's going to play for Man City or something but for a lot of the teams in the EPL he might struggle with so I'd say Bayern Munich
1: And by the way, another young American heading to Germany, Tyler Adams, it was announced this weekend. He is off to Leipzig in January. I think that's a great move for him. I'm very curious to see how that goes. Uh, I agree with you with Pulisic. Over the weekend, Bayern Munich more or less confirmed that this will be the last season for both Robin and Ribéry. So I think from a soccer standpoint... Byron make perfect sense. He could go there and be one of the centerpieces of this rebuilding project of theirs. I just wonder if, if Chelsea are, in fact, going to offer like 70 million euros, has been has been reported. I don't wow. know that Bayern are going to go that high for him. They don't like to spend that much money. And also, Dortmund have taken such heat in recent years for letting some of their best players go to Bayern that all things being equal, I think they'd rather him go to Chelsea. So mm-hmm. uh, that's another mm-hmm. part of this. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I think Bayern makes a whole lot of sense.
0: All right, what's next?
1: At... L underscore Especial 241. David Villa leaving MLS. Thoughts on his MLS career?
0: Okay, Senor Especial. David Villa, one of, if not the greatest designated player signings in MLS history. The only knock on him would obviously be that they didn't win an MLS Cup. With him, uh, when, and when you put those the names up there, you're talking about your Keens, your Beckham's, your uh, Jovinkos, these types of designated players that have changed the way we see them, changed the way we see their teams. Keep in keep in mind, David Villa signed with uh, NYCFC even before they came into being. He went and played a little bit over in uh, Australia, uh, and then came over and he hit the ground running. And he didn't look back in terms of his consistency of scoring goals. He wasn't injured a lot. I know last last year or so, there have been some injuries. But for the most part, when he was on the field, he did the job of a designated player, which was to lead the team. And from his perspective to put the ball in the back of the, and even when everybody was watching and expecting, he still delivered uh, and he just showed his class. He was a, a true pleasure to uh, to watch. I think he will have been made better as not just a player but as a person for his time with uh, in Major League Soccer and certainly from a Major League Soccer, uh, soccer perspective, he made the league better. He's off to uh, make some money in Japan and play soccer uh, in a new adventure over there and in the same way that I don't like it when people say, well, it's a retirement league uh, when a player comes to Major League Soccer. I'm not going to say that he's going off uh, to retire, but I'm sure he's making much more money than NYC certainly wanted to pay him, and probably anybody uh, was going to pay him. And look, you only have a certain amount of time in your career, so I don't begrudge him that, and the adventure on and off the field in in Japan, I think, will help him in the the same way that uh, his adventure here in the United States did.
1: All right, next up, at Rickyville, I think is how you pronounce that. UEFA Nations League, European Super League, La Liga in the U.S., suggestions of World Cup every two years. Is there such a thing as too much soccer? In chasing the big bucks, are the soccer powers losing touch with the fans, diluting the experience?
0: There is a danger if the players and teams that are put on the field, it manifests in them, in that if you're seeing teams and players that aren't taking it seriously then that has a limited lifespan. And we've seen it in terms of the summer tours that have come over and the numbers that 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 have started to fall off because the American soccer buying culture and community out there is savvy. They understand and they don't want to see all a bunch of young players playing. They want to see the stars that they see each and every week playing in those leagues. And so if there, it's I mean, look, I I love to watch soccer. I'll watch it all day. However, if I'm watching soccer that has been diluted because the players are stepping on the field and and aren't taking it seriously, yeah, that's a problem. Now, a World Cup's a World Cup, but I, I think what makes it special is the amount of time in between. And when you have somebody like Maradona or, or anybody, it's made special because that person took a hold of an opportunity and a sliver of an opportunity and made it their own and wasn't given chance after chance after chance. And I'm using Maradona, but there's plenty of uh, of people out there. And yes, it has to do with your ability. It has to do with timing. It has to do with luck. And I I don't want to lose that. And I am romantic about that notion of because there is that separation of four years, it makes it special. And I don't want to lose that. I'll watch it. But I don't want to lose that, most importantly, because I don't want the players to be infected, if you will, with a uh, an approach that then dilutes their performance. If they just say, well, I can figure it out in a couple of years, this didn't work out well or whatever, and in a couple of years, I'll have another chance. No, you, you should be playing a World Cup with the recognition that so much can happen in four years that this might be your only chance ever, and you better not waste it, and I want to see that manifested in the way that they play uh, individually and collectively out there on the field.
1: And there's a lot of news today related to this guy's question, so I'll drop it in here. Uh, WAFA okay. today did announce they are adding a third club competition. It is going to begin in 2021. The working title of it is UEL2. It is also going to take place on Thursdays. And the winner of that competition is going to earn a Europa League berth. The idea is to give more clubs a chance to compete in Europe. So uh, I'm sure we'll delve into that more moving forward. Also, the uh, UEFA Nations League semi-final draw took place today. It will be England against the Netherlands and Portugal against Switzerland. And then the winners will meet in the final. All the matches from this point forward will be in Portugal. They uh, won the hosting rights for the semifinal and final of the UEFA Nations League. And finally uh, some good news. UEFA did in fact confirm today that there will be VAR in the knockout stages of the Champions League. I did a Mossy makes the case about this a couple of weeks ago. I said that Raheem Sterling play in the City Shakhtar game was something of a tipping point for both the Champions League and the Premier League and sure enough a few days later the Premier League uh, signed off on VAR for next season and now UEFA takes this step. They were already going to add it next season and they've moved that forward and it's going to be added for the knockout stages of the Champions League this season. So we have VAR everywhere except apparently the women's world cup i saw your buddy rob stone all fired up about that today he was tweeting about it i guess fifa are, are waffling on whether there's going to be var at the women's world cup but uh it is coming to the champions league sooner than later
0: uh, well we'll have plenty of world cup uh, coverage and talk and uh, and back and forth as we lead up to next summer looking forward to uh to that all right that's been our ask alexi remember use that hashtag and uh, moss you might read your question in future podcasts all right moving on the back three Time for our back three when we look at some of the biggest stories, games, moments uh, that have come or are coming. Uh, What do we got in the back three this week, Mossy? All
1: right. First up, MLS Cup. You're in New York to promote it right now, and then you will head to Atlanta later in the week. It will be Atlanta United hosting the Portland Timbers. Uh, Your thoughts?
0: So, yeah, I am in New York. We're doing a bunch of promo for the weekend uh, MLS Cup Saturday night special from Atlanta, 70,000-plus in that stadium. It's going to be so much fun to see both of these teams, Atlanta United, the juggernaut that they have been through the year, and then this little engine that could that is Portland, Portland that just kind of squeaked in uh, into the playoffs. And we will release an actual State of the Union in video form that deals specifically with Atlanta. But as a little little teaser, I think that this is Atlanta's to lose. I think that Atlanta United is a better team than Portland. I think Atlanta knows it. Uh, I think Portland knows it. And I think everybody knows it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be given to Atlanta. And Giovanni Savarese has done a wonderful job in getting this team to MLS Cup with some twists and turns through the year. Uh, It's going to be fun. And my State of the Union, you should check out with regards to MLS Cup, really deals with the fact that I believe that Atlanta United has now become the MLS Super Club in two short years. It's not LA Galaxy. It's not Seattle. It's not Toronto. It's Atlanta United. But they can lose that. Uh, And one way to do it is by when you have a golden opportunity to kind of seal this, this brand and this legacy after two years with an MLS Cup played at home, you better take it. Uh, and I'm looking so so forward to getting down because they own that city and they are going to be out of their mind, bonkers excited about hosting this final and the opportunity to raise that trophy, uh, especially for a city that hasn't since, what, 1995 in terms of raising a trophy from one of their professional teams and the way that they have owned their market own that brand the numbers that they have achieved is just phenomenal in comparison certainly to anybody in mls but anybody around the world uh and that's what they're competing with but this saturday night if they were to win mls cup it would go a long way to maintaining and establishing them as the preeminent team in uh, in major league soccer it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun and i can't wait to get down there all right what else
1: all right most of the action in europe this weekend took place in england Um, Full disclosure, this was almost my Mossy Makes the Case today, so I have a lot to say about this topic, so bear with me here. On Saturday, Uh, Manchester United drew 2-2 away to Southampton. They continue to drift further away from the top four. While on Sunday, Arsenal uh, had a great uh, 4-2 win over Tottenham. They are unbeaten in 19 games. Arsenal now go to Old Trafford. There's a midweek Premier League round. Manchester United host Arsenal on Wednesday. And I've been thinking a lot about these two clubs and Arsenal's transition from Wenger as compared to Manchester United's transition from Sir Alex Ferguson back in 2013. And Sir Alex went out on top. He won the Premier League his last season, while Wenger, we all know, struggled his last few years at Arsenal. But I actually think that played to Arsenal's advantage because with United, there was a sense that we have to let Sir Alex handpick his successor. He opted for David Moyes. There was nobody at that club that could say, look, we're Manchester United. We can do better than David Moyes. Let's go out and get a bigger manager. Well, Arsenal weren't beholden to Wenger in any way. They could go out and get the best manager available. They went out and got Unai Emery, who, by the way, some people criticize that hire, but... but I mean, you look at his resume, and it's much less of a stretch in terms of pedigree for Una Emery to replace Arsene Wenger at Arsenal than it was for David Moyes to replace Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, and you see the results now. Arsenal haven't missed a beat. They're having a, a very good season while United, all these years later, are still struggling. So, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about that, and it's going to be fascinating when these two clubs meet. Also, frankly, there are a lot of parallels between Manchester United and Michigan football because, you know, you, sometimes uh, you, make, we go. you make one catastrophic hire. In Michigan's case, it was Rich Rodriguez. In <laughs> United's case, it was David Moyes. You lose that culture of winning. It's hard to get it back. Then you make another bad hire on top of it. For Michigan, it was Brady Hogue. For United, it was Louis Van Gaal. A- and then by the time you get around to going for a, quote-unquote, sure thing, uh, United's case, Mourinho. And Michigan's case, Harbaugh you're so far gone that even he can't get it back. So I think that's what United are struggling with now. And so I know I threw a lot at you there. What, what do you make of well, what, what I just said?
0: Uh, so let, let me just, uh, I'm not going to talk about all of it, but uh, the Arsenal phenomenon that's happening right now. I, I'm in New York. I was just actually walking down the street and somebody stopped me to, to talk about soccer and was an Arsenal fan. and So excited and positive in, in a way that we haven't seen from Arsenal fans for a long time. And it was it was interesting because... Do you think that it's fair? And I can't remember. Some I was reading on Twitter. Somebody said this, and I apologize. I, I should have referenced who it is, but I just I don't remember. So whoever you are out there, uh, this is this is from you. Uh, they were arguing that it's not fair to constantly compare and contrast with Arsene Wenger what's happening right now with with Arsenal, and my. my my question to them was okay I get it because Arsene Wenger was much more than the dark days and the problems that that marked the end of his time there but that's you know we we have very short short memories and that for Arsenal fans and for a lot of Arsenal people is what you're rebounding from and so I I do think that it's fair in, in the same way that it's it's, if it's not fair there, then it's also not fair to judge any manager that comes in after Sir Alex in the opposite way. Sir Alex was, was really, really good right at the end. Certainly he was incredible and he went out in a blaze of glory. But do you think that it's that it's fair that Arsene Wenger, the, the, Ars, the, the bad Arsenal version under Arsene Wenger, is constantly being brought up when it comes to what Arsenal is now?
1: I do because that's the most recent version. So that's, you know, it's funny because there were some Wenger defenders, even till the bitter end, that would say to me, like, be careful what you wish for, Arsenal fans. Look at what happened to Manchester United when Sir Alex left, and the same thing's going to happen to you guys when Wenger leaves. And I always argued no because because of what I just said. With Manchester United, they made a catastrophically bad hire. I assumed Arsenal wasn't going to be beholden to like having Wenger pick some hand-picked you know, hand-picked successor some assistant of his. Or something. They were actually going to go out and do a proper search and, and try to find a manager with pedigree. I mean, Unai Emery is a guy that's won major European trophies. He was managing PSG in the Champions League last season. It wasn't that big a stretch for him to take over Arsenal. So there was a much better chance of a guy coming in and, and it being sort of a seamless transition which it has been. So, uh, no, I think the standard you have to judge when I am on is the arsenal of the last few years because that's that's essentially what he was inheriting. So, uh, no, I don't, I don't get that guy's point. I think it's, it's a natural uh, standard to use. Do you think that Mourinho makes it to the end of the year? I do not. It looks like uh, they're going to finish second in their Champions League group and... Uh, this looks to be a year that 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 could mean drawing somebody very good uh, in the round of 16. The group winners looks like are going to be very strong. And so if they go out there and are out of the Champions League come February, March, and they're pretty far uh, from the top four, I think that's when they would wave the white flag on this season and wave the white flag on Modinho and and look to make a change. I think the fact that he was somehow able to get to the knockout stages of the Champions League and the fact that it's early enough in the season where it's not implausible they could still finish in the top four, that's sort of keeping him around. But but. Once the Champions League is gone, and once you're late enough in the season, if there's still like eight, nine points back and forth, then you're going to look at it and say, look, what are we accomplishing here? Let's just pull the plug now. And I think that's that's going to happen around February or March. One more question
0: about the uh, EPL uh, shenanigans this weekend. Uh, you m- mentioned Liverpool's uh, late winner in that Merseyside Derby, Derby, whatever we're going to call it. Were you bent out of shape with the celebration, uh, Jurgen Klopp uh, running on the field when they scored that winner?
1: No, I mean he might need to be fined or punished in some way for it, but it's not that big a deal. There are celebrations where you feel like a guy is really rubbing it into the other team, and that's not that wasn't the vibe there at all. We all know Klopp is an excitable guy, and he was just happy his team scored and was celebrating with his own players, and then he still had a very like respectful and warm embrace with Marco Silva after the match. So I didn't see that as in any way disrespectful towards Everton. I mean look, I mean how's the guy supposed to react? I mean, that was the soccer equivalent of a Hail Mary. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it was <Yep>. incredible. <laughs>
0: Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I had no problem with it. I mean, that's that's why we love Jurgen Klopp because he he he's emotional, he's passionate, he, he goes crazy. He's a likable type of character. He's the opposite of Bill Belichick, and we love him for it. But it doesn't work unless you combine it with winning, which is what he has done everywhere he's everywhere he's been, and so that's another reason to uh, to like him. All right, what's next?
1: All right, we'll end on this. The Ballon d'Or winner is going to be announced today. As of taping, it's still not official yet, but everybody is saying uh, Luka Modric is going to win it. If he doesn't, uh, Alex Dowd's going to have some real editing on his hands because we're going to approach this conversation as if Luka Modric won it. I did a Mossy Makes the Case a few weeks ago when Modric won the FIFA Best Award, and I said, look, there's still a lot of people out there that view the Ballon d'Or as the more prestigious prize. They view the FIFA Award as akin to, like, the Golden Globes and the Ballon d'Or as the Oscars. So had Ronaldo or somebody else won the Ballon d'Or, it would have really diminished Modric winning the FIFA Award. So now he wins both, so there's no way around it. Like, he was the player of the year in world football this year. He won both major awards, assuming he wins it. So I think that, that's the big story here
0: you think that, that this is a sing- signaling of a, of a changing of the guard? Uh, I mean, because look, because uh, Ronaldo could go and lead uh, Serie A in goal scoring and lead Juventus to the promised land of the of Champions League this time, you know, when June rolls around.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, my, my Mossy makes a case a few weeks ago, I reiterated here, was that I think Modric benefited from, uh, there was a sentiment this year of just let's give it to somebody else. We're kind of over the Messi-Ronaldo thing. But this does feel like a one-off deal. You're talking about a 33-year-old midfielder who, who you know, it was a World Cup year. World Cup years can can be kind of funky, and somebody does well in that tournament, uh, it really boosts his candidacy like beyond what it would normally be. Uh, so I think. there's still a wait for like a real successor to Messi and Ronaldo in the sense of who's going to be the next best player in the world and Mm -hmm. a guy that's really going to sort of stamp himself as that next guy. So I don't think Luka Modric winning it uh, is is really that that occurring here. It is nice anytime, uh, you know, from a purist standpoint, anytime somebody wins it that isn't this flashy attacking player that scores goals. Uh, You know, you have to go go all the way back to Fabio Cannavaro in 2006, who I always joke, he's like the Charles Woodson of the Ballon d'Or. And Modric is at least, you know, he's not a defender, he's a midfielder. But still, it it gets you away from it being the Messi's, Ronaldo Kaká had been the last guy to win it before Messi and Ronaldo. So when a player like this is recognized, you know, it's neat to, you know, people are really kind of paying attention. They recognize his value, too. All right. Anything else, Mossy? That is it.
0: All right, we have come to the end of another show. I appreciate uh, your patience as I come to you from the road here in New York City. As I said, uh, we're doing all sorts of promotion, getting ready for this weekend, the big game Saturday night on Fox, Big Fox, Homer Simpson, Fox. Uh, our coverage kicks off at 7.30 Eastern time of MLS Cup, Atlanta United hosting uh, the Portland Timbers. Uh, So my one big thing from today's podcast, and it goes back to in a week where we're going to be talking a lot about Greg Berhalter and what this means for the U.S. men's national team and vis-a-vis what it means for U.S. soccer as a whole. And I mentioned it earlier on, it pains me as someone who has been around for a long time in this game. And this, this game, when I talk about this game, this American game, this American soccer culture uh, is different. We talk about the unique aspects of it, uh, but it is something that is near and dear to me. And the fact that there has been such a huge amount of consternation and anger and uh, depression as to what happened, but also a lack of confidence that we are going to come out of it or go forward. I hope that Greg Berhalter can be a uniter. I hope that Greg Berhalter can come to represent all that is good about American soccer and about the U.S. men's national team. Uh, That is is his charge. And you do that, yes, by winning. But you also do that by uh, articulating exactly what you want done, which I think that he will do. And I do hope that a year from now, we are talking about our U.S. men's national team, uh, our U.S. women's national team, our United States Soccer Federation, and our sport in a much more positive way. But that only comes from results. That only comes from work. And there's a lot of very, very smart and capable men and women that work behind the scenes uh, at U.S. soccer and in US soccer to push us forward and I'm glad that we have finally named it I don't know why it took so long but I'm sure that there are reasons out there and I can certainly make a case for it but I think that this should have uh, been done earlier and I do think that it was some wasted time but I can get past that and I can put and give all of my support and believe that Greg Berhalter can do good things. And I want him to succeed, as I want every men's national team coach or women's national team coach to succeed. I want to see us one day, from a men's perspective, win the World Cup. Uh, I want to see us get better. I want to see this American soccer community believe in itself. I want to see this American soccer community believe that we are doing things in the right way, even with different different ideas and different approaches. That's okay. We're always going to have that. We're not going to agree on everything. But you know what gets people to agree (laughs) really quickly? Uh, It's winning. And that's what Greg Berhalter is charged with doing. I wish him all of the luck in the world. He has my full support. Whether I agree with he was the right or the wrong person, it really doesn't matter because he is the man right now. And whether I agree going forward with everything he does, doesn't matter either. He will always have my support in that I want him to be successful and I want him to win. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to do my job and at times be critical of the things uh, that he does, but that's, that comes with it. And Greg's a big boy. I've known him for many, many years. He's been around. He understands that that's, uh, that's part of it. He understands that he's stepping into the fire right now. But I also know that, that Greg Burhalter has a belief in himself, likes a challenge, And if he plays his cards right, it's very possible that he could go down as the greatest coach in American soccer history. And I hope that he does, because it will mean that this national team will have done things the likes of which we haven't seen before. And that's something that we all want and all can agree upon uh, is something that we want. All right, Mossy, anything left to say? Nope, that's it Well, I bid you adieu from New York City I'm going to go out and do some more uh, press And please, please tune in this weekend 7.30, our coverage kicks off from Atlanta Atlanta United hosting the Portland Timbers It is going to be so much fun on Big Fox, Homer Simpson, Fox It's going to be just fun on and off the field To see this culmination of what has been a really, really interesting And cool and fun and entertaining uh, MLS season Alright, size the day